Good morning, and welcome to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. Today is Saturday, July 16th, 2022. We are broadcasting live here in Chicago. My name is David Canfield, and I'll be your host for this hour. You can visit us online at thechristianfaith.org. You can send us an email with questions or comments at notes at thechristianfaith.org. And if you want to listen to past editions of this program, you can go to our website and click on the Media tab, and uh, under there, there is the podcast link for the Christian Faith Radio Hour. It's available on iTunes and Spotify and other services as well. And so last week, we uh, began to cover the matter of the reward and discipline of the believers in the coming age, which is the millennium. And this is a topic that is not frequently spoken of among believers today. We've, we've said before in this program, as believers, we like the free part about salvation. That's the part I want to hear about. The part about our responsibility, about paying a price to follow the Lord, to follow Christ. Uh, we're not so keen on hearing that, but that's a big, big part of the New Testament. And unfortunately, uh, some people, according to their theology, they basically just shut off that part of the New Testament. But it's there, and we need to be very sober and considerate in a very sober way. And so we want to continue that today. We, uh, as the Lord allows, we want to continue uh, to get into this uh, parable of the ten virgins that we began to cover last week. And of course, the stress last week is that abs- that parable is absolutely and very clearly talking about believers. It's not uh, some people like to say that the foolish virgins there are unbelievers, but uh, we made it uh, the case last week that no, there's just no way to say that. And so, if you uh, want to listen to that, you can listen uh, to last week's the podcast of last week's show from uh, July 9th. But getting into that this matter this week, continuing to consider, I, I, I took a uh, a bit of an unexpected turn because I began to consider this matter of the inheritance uh, that we will have as believers in Christ, which is uh, part of this matter of how the Lord's going to reward us. And I began to consider how today, of course, we haven't yet received our inheritance. And so I wanted to spend a little time talking about that and contrasting it with uh, t- with that day when we do receive our inheritance. And you know, 1 Corinthians 4.3 is, is really a key verse in the New Testament. <clears throat> uh, the Apostle Paul says, For me it is the very smallest matter that I may be examined of you or in any human court. Now, at least that's the way most of the versions uh, translate that verse. And <clears throat> Paul, of course, is, he's talking here with the Corinthians who had questioned his, um, his serving of the Lord. He's saying, basically, I, I, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you. But in the actual Greek, the phrase there is not human court. It's a, it's a, it's a phrase we're not used to. But uh, in like a, I'll translate, use the Darby translation this time. I'll read it. But for me, it is the very smallest matter if I be examined of you or of man's day. The day of man, in other words. Paul here is making a point. He's saying today is the day of man. In the Bible, of course, the day of the Lord is a very big matter. It's a great matter, and that's the coming day of the Lord. But what Paul is saying here is that today is not man, the day of the Lord. Today is man's day. Today, what man says matters. You know, we have the elections coming up uh, in November here in this country, and people running for governor and senator and congressman and, and all these other offices. Uh, because if you win those races, then you get to say what the policy is going to be. And if you lose, you don't get to say... Um, 
because you are in authority today because today is man's day. So people fight over this kind of office. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, we're waiting until the day comes when man's day is going to be over. That day is only going to last a little while longer. But for now, for today, it is man's day. And so we believers have not yet received our inheritance. And it's unfortunate. We, we see the result of man trying to live apart from God and rule the earth apart from God, apart from God's authority. And so as, as I was considering this, I came to Psalm 12, uh, which is a short psalm, but it's a very... Uh, it just seems to encapsulate so much of what's going on in the world today. And so I just wanted to read through through that briefly, each, each of the verses. This is Psalm 12 in the Old Testament. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. It is really so. In this country, so many of our leaders used to be God-fearing men, faithful men. Even You know, you can say whether they were believers or not, we may not know. But for sure, they had a real fear of God. They were faithful men. Uh, and, and that's a big part of the reason why this country was blessed for so long. But when you look at our leaders today, very hard to find ones like this. It's exactly what the psalm says here. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Verse 2, they speak idly, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. A lot of this, as we'll see, a lot of this psalm has to do with speaking with our words. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Right? Our tongue, so many tongues today speak proud things. Listen to what verse 4 says. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? So often, man's rebellion against God is expressed by his speaking. We, we can say whatever we want. We'll just say whatever we want. Who, who's our Lord? Who can tell us what to say? Well, again, this is man's day. So that's right. Today, you can say whatever you want. Eventually, you're going to be called to account for what you say. But today, that's right. You can say whatever you want. And men just rebel against God and they have this thought, who can rule over us? But then in verse 5, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Praise the Lord for that. Now, in contrast to man's word, in verse 6, you have... Uh, the words of the Lord. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You know, as the believers today, what, what's happening to us on this furnace uh, as we're on the earth before, while we're waiting for our inheritance? We're being purified seven times. You know, seven in the Bible, in the Bible is the number of completion in times. It means we're being completely purified as we're on the earth. Silver, of course, has to do with redemption in the Bible. And it's really especially it has to do with the redemption of our soul. It's this work of redeeming us back to God in our soul. That's a process we go through. We're being purified. And eventually, as we're purified, we're able to speak the pure words. You shall keep them, O Lord, who preserve, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. Praise the Lord. That's verse 7, his promise. Hard to say there. Is that talking about the people who are waiting for the Lord or the words they speak? Very often, the words of the Lord's servants last many, many years after they're gone. Of course, in the New Testament, those are such pure words. We have them until today. But even after that, uh, so many uh, believers, servants of the Lord, have spoken very, very healthy words, and we still have those with us today. It seems like it's a fulfillment of this promise here. Praise the Lord. But then in verse 8, he comes back uh, to um, the situation today. 
Quite a striking verse. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. It is really so. So much vileness is exalted in our society today in every kind of way, every kind of uh, sexual immorality, uh, the way people dress. Um, they, they, they disfigure themselves with these tattoos are being promoted all over the place. You just, just hate to see this kind of thing. Uh, it's just uh, so, uh, so much vileness is exalted among the sons of day. Uh, of men today, and it's really so. When that happens, uh, Psalm 12, 8 says, the wicked prowl on every side. So people exalt this kind of vile, vileness, and then they wonder, how come our society is crumbling? Uh, we're just, it seems like all the moral order in society is being torn down. There's no, no uh, bounds anymore to our society. Well, that's because uh, vileness is being exalted among the sons of men. We're not in a position to condemn anybody, but we have to point these things out to be faithful as servants of the Lord. Um, so like I said, that psalm, it seems to me, just uh, uh, kind of encapsulates the situation right now in our society. And I just noticed that this week. Because this is man's day. Man's trying to figure out how to run the earth. We're waiting for the day of the Lord. And it does seem like, praise the Lord, before very long, man's day will finally be over. And then the day of the Lord will come. And that's the day we're really looking for. Um, it says uh, in... Uh, uh, Revelation 16, 14. It, that's called the great day of God Almighty. Listen to uh, Revelation 6, 16 and 17. You know, this is just after the opening of the sixth seal. You have all these supernatural signs in heaven. Um, the, the moon is turned to blood uh, and, uh, and the earth is shaken and uh, men are in terror before the Lord because they realize, the, well, here's what they say. They said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? So in that day, they're going to, men are finally in their conscience. Today they know what they're doing is wrong. In that day, they're going to realize our, our day is over. Now the day of their wrath has come and we just have no way to stand. And I didn't realize until this week that, uh, that those verses, Revelation 6, 16 through 17, will be a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied, uh, you know, 25, 2700 years ago. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, he says, uh, he says to the people, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord. And the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of man shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Uh, in verse 17 he goes on again. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down. And the haughtiness of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Today man is so haughty and so proud and so rebellious. But Isaiah is warning us. Just like Isaiah Revelation 6 shows us. That pride, that loftiness is going to be brought low. Verse uh, Isaiah 2.18, But the idols he shall utterly abolish. In verse 19, They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. That day is coming when the Lord arises to shake the earth mightily. Praise the Lord. And we need to be ready for that day. And we always like to share a word of the gospel in this program. I would say if you're not ready, if you're standing before the Lord is not right, don't wait for that day. That day, it may be too late. Today, open your heart and tell the Lord, Lord, I repent. I take you as my Savior. I'm a sinner. I confess it. I repent of my pride. I, 
I repent of my loftiness, my haughtiness, my proud words against you. I repent. Forgive me in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, so I can hide in him. I can't hide under the rocks. And, and you know, in that day, actually, if you look in uh, Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12, it says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. In that day, there's no, not going to be any rocks or caves left. They're all going to be gone. Heaven and earth are going to flee away. There will be no place to hide from the presence of God. So it says these sinners have to stand before God. It says this great white throne from whose face earth and heaven fled away. So today we need to take, today's the day when we can hide in Christ because he's not going to flee away. He'll be with us, right, when we stand before God in his judgment. Praise the Lord. So now is the day. Hide yourself in Christ. Believe in him as your Savior. Take him as your refuge and be saved so you don't have to stand before God on your own in that day. Praise the Lord. So um, that day, it seems like it's coming very soon. One indication of that, strong indication, is the fact that Israel is back in possession of the good land and even of Jerusalem. And that has to happen for so many biblical prophecies about the end times to be fulfilled. And it was just a miracle. God, God restored them to the, to the good land back in um, 1948. Of course, in 67, they took Jerusalem. So it seems like the time is near. We can't make predictions when it's going to happen, but it certainly seems you look at the world situation, how much longer this can go on. It seems like the time is near. And we certainly hope that it is. Praise the Lord. So eventually, man's day is going to be over. And uh, then the day of the Lord will begin. And eventually, we are going to enter into our inheritance as believers in Christ. Um, in the book of Daniel, it says the saints will possess the kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the Antichrist and uh, his coming uh, and how he's going to persecute the saints. And it says he makes war against them, he prevails against them. Uh, and it says, uh, Daniel seven eighteen. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Daniel seven twenty two. Uh, here it is talking about the Antichrist. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. Praise the Lord! And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So that time is coming. Nine, uh, Psalm 94, 15, 14 and 15 tell us, For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to righteousness. Praise the Lord. You know, today, judgment and righteousness are two different things. Uh, those who have the judgment, so often these judgments are not righteous. They're just not what they should be. But a day is coming when judgment is going to return to righteousness. And then it goes on, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Praise the Lord. So that day is coming for the saints to possess the kingdom when uh, judgment will return to righteousness. So in uh, the New Testament, we're told we're going to receive an inheritance. And the Old Testament talks about us possessing the kingdom. Uh, and we, in, uh, But in the New Testament, it's... Uh, Often the way it expresses it, we are going to receive an inheritance. And the question is, how do we receive this inheritance? Well, it's spoken of in a couple of different ways. And this is where, as we emphasized last week, and as we're going to emphasize quite a lot on this program, we have to understand there are always two sides of the truth. 
So in one sense, we receive the inheritance simply as a promise. It's, it's given to us by faith. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 14 says, For if those of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. He's, uh, Paul here is stressing the promise is by faith. We just receive this promise by faith. Galatians 3, 18 for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And he's likening uh, the inheritance here to our receiving of the Spirit. The, we receive the Spirit, the inheritance, simply as a gift from God. He simply gives it to us as the believers in Christ. Um, Hebrews 9.15 talks about uh, the eternal inheritance. We were born, uh, uh, regenerated unto an eternal inheritance in that section of the word. First Peter, uh, or sorry, Hebrews 9.15 talks about the internal inher eternal inheritance. First Peter 1.4 says we've been regenerated unto a living hope, unto an e e inheritance undefiled, unfading, kept in the heavens for us. So if we're born anew, we can look forward to that inheritance. It is going to be ours. Praise the Lord. So that's one side of the truth in the New Testament. But there's another side that we need to be aware of as well. And again, we just would say, there's a whole aspect of the truth that talks about our responsibility before God. That's a big, big part of the truth in the New Testament. And we shouldn't try to ignore that side of the truth. We shouldn't uh, diminish it. It's there in the New Testament and we need to be very uh, sober in our consideration of that aspect of the truth. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 the Apostle Paul, is, in this section, of course, he, in chapter 5, he talks about uh, a brother who uh, got involved in a terrible sin, uh, a kind of incestuous uh, relationship, just un unspeakably foul. And uh, in chapter 6, he's talking about brothers who are suing each other. And then he goes on, do you not know, uh, this is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So he's saying you received, you were washed, uh, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God, you have a new nature now, but you have to live according to that nature. If you live in the old way, getting involved in these old things, he's saying you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then, that, then the kingdom of God is not going to be your portion. So it seems like it contradicts some of these other portions we read. Uh, I won't read it, but Galatians 5, 19 through 11, this very same thought. Um, if it says uh, those, he talks about many evil behaviors, and he says uh, verse twenty-one, Galatians five twenty-one. I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, how can this be? How can it be? In, in some places, the inheritance is just promised as a reward, and in other places, it seems like uh, we may, if we behave in a, in a improper way. We can lose this reward. Well, the key is to understand it's talking about the inheritance in two different phases. And this is a big, big point we need to understand uh, is that the next age is not eternity. Between this age and eternity is the millennial reign of Christ. And that's where the believers will be rewarded 
or disciplined according to how we live our lives in this age. That's such a crucial point uh, to understand. So the promises related to the free gift of salvation and the eternal inheritance relate to the 1,000, uh, relate rather to eternity. The warnings about losing the inheritance, about not sharing in the inheritance uh, uh, in the kingdom of Christ and of God relate to the millennial reign of Christ. And that's how you reconcile those two sides. And it's so crucial to see these two different ages that are coming if we're going to have a proper view of living the Christian life. And the key verse that makes this clear is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So here it's, he's saying you don't have an inheritance in the kingdom, which is the kingdom both of Christ and of God. That's referring to the millennium. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you can look up these verses again just for the sake of time. I, uh, I won't get into them, but that makes it clear. Uh, well, maybe you need to look at those a little bit, actually. Uh, that makes it clear that Christ is going to be reigning on the earth for that 1,000-year period. Uh, it says uh, in verse uh, 23 it says uh, uh, it's talking about the resurrection it says each one is made alive in his own order, own order first Christ and then those who are his it is coming and then the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father so first there's the coming of Christ and then there's the end. These are two different things. At the end, he delivers up the kingdom. So during that period between his coming in verse 23 and then the end in verse 24, that's the millennium. It goes on. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's what he's doing. During the millennium, it's still not a perfect age yet. There's still some enemies to be dealt with. And of course, at the end of the millennium, you have Satan's last rebellion against God. And he's cast into the lake of fire. Uh, and then after that, after that, it says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So this is, we don't have time to develop that too much, but this is making it clear during the millennium, it will be the kingdom of Christ. So when Ephesians 5, chap, chapter 5, verse 5, speaks of the kingdom of Christ and of God and not having an inheritance in the kingdom, that's what it's talking about. And it makes it clear what these other verses are talking about as well. They're saying during that time, during that 1,000 years, if we live, uh, if we get involved in evil things here on the earth, we lose that inheritance. Uh, during that period of time, we will lose that inheritance and the reward of reigning with Christ. And we don't, we don't quite know what the standard is uh, uh, for that. For sure, if you get involved in these evil things, as these verses we've read have made clear, um, then we won't have share in that inheritance. Um, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Right? It wasn't necessarily that he did anything morally corrupt. He just didn't value what the Lord had given him. Uh, today, it's possible we can sell our birthright. And then it, uh, in uh, uh, Hebrews, it goes on to say that he, when he wanted to seek the, the, the blessing, he couldn't. There was no place for repentance. He sought it with tears. If you sell your birthright uh, by living in a life, a life here that's, that's not, a prop, not, pro, not a proper life, not according to this nature we've received in Christ, it doesn't matter how much you repent in that day. There's no place for repentance. How much you, just like Esau, you can't. You've lost the blessing. You forfeited that right. 
Uh, and the best example of this in the New Testament uh, of one who was aware of his need to run the race was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul himself was not sure he was going to gain the reward. That's 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. Um, he said, uh, verse 27, I discipline uh, my body, lest having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He's not talking about salvation there. He's talking about the reward of that 1,000 years. He, he, he himself was not sure. So you may say, well, then you, you don't have the assurance. Concerning our eternal destiny, regarding that, yes, we do have the assurance. We absolutely have the assurance. But concerning the reward of the millennial kingdom, we don't have that assurance any more than the Apostle Paul did. We have to realize we have to run the race today. And so that's when it's talking about entering into the inheritance uh, and, and whether and that's contingent on how we live our lives in this age. That's what it's talking about. But the good news is eventually, in eternity, we all will receive the gift of the inheritance as a, as a gift. Revelation 21.7 says, uh, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Eventually, every believer in Christ is going to be an overcomer. We're going to fully enter into what God desires us to be. We're going to be exactly what God wants us to be. And that way, we can enter into the inheritance as a gift, as God's free gift to us. That's Revelation chapter 21, verse 7. So, again, we have to stress there's no question about our eternal destiny. The question is, how are we going to be spending that millennium? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was very touched this week. And, in, and this, this morning we just sent out an email that had this quote in it, uh, how God is testing us today. And again, if you want to sign up for that email, uh, you can go to our website, thechristianfaith.org, and click on the subscription tab. We usually send out a couple emails a week. But uh, the email this morning was mainly a quote from D.M. Panton, who strongly taught this matter. He had a, has a book called The Judgment Seat of Christ. I really appreciate what he said, so I'll just quote him here. Officers are, he's talking about the parable in Luke, 4, Luke 19, the parable of the minas, where the Lord gives a mina, the, the uh, uh, prince gives a, a, a nobleman, gives a mina to each of his ten servants, and then he goes away, and he comes back, and he finds out how they did with the mina. And those who are faithful are rewarded by being put over cities. Those who are unfaithful, uh, the one who's unfaithful has his mina taken away from him. And so Pembroke, uh, not Pember, sorry, uh, D.M. Panton comments, officers are required for the administration of a kingdom. So God has deliberately interposed a prolonged period between his two advents that our Lord might be enabled to so test his servants in his absence as to discover which are fitted for positions of responsibility and trust at his return. So that's what we're, that's what's going on today. We're being tested the Lord is trying to find out who's going to be faithful. Who can I entrust with responsibility to reign with me in my kingdom? That's what he wants to find out. That's what our Christian life is for. And I understand, I know not many people are teaching this today, but it's absolutely in the New Testament. It's a huge part of the New Testament, this reward and discipline of the believers. So I would just urge you to please to consider these words very soberly before the Lord. You know, what we stress in this program, what we insist on, is that the Bible is our unique authority. Uh, not man's teaching, uh, not uh, somebody has a PhD or they're at this school or they publish this book. Now, sometimes those things may be good. You know, they may be helpful. But eventually, we have to say the Bible itself and alone is our authority. So I would encourage you again to um, go over some of the verses we've spoken of in, in this uh, segment and look at them and soberly consider them before the Lord. 
don't accept uh, the lie that uh, once we believe in Jesus, everything's fine. We're just basically waiting to go to heaven. No, there's so much the Lord still needs to do in us. And uh, that's a big part. We, like we covered last week was the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, and we see that the wise enter into the wedding feast and the foolish are shut out. And that's a sober warning. And so now in the, in the next segment, uh, we want to come back uh, and consider a little bit more uh, of that uh parable. But then first, in, in, in general, we're going to bring a brother in who's going to share with us about allegory and what it, what it means to study allegories. And so that we'll begin to do that uh, in the next segment here. We'll be back with you on the other side of the break. This program is produced along with our website, thechristianfaith.org, to help address the need for a healthy word of ministry among God's children today. In the Old Testament, the Lord tells us through the prophet Hosea, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Our prayer is that the Lord, by his mercy, may use the ChristianFaith.org website and the Christian Faith Radio Hour to help the believers in Christ grow in our knowledge both of our Savior and of our faith in him so that we may stand more firmly for the Lord and for his purpose in these dark times. Visit us online for articles on the Bible and the Christian life and to sign up for our e-letter, which deals with various biblical topics. To listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab, or directly on iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions or comments about what you've heard on this program or on our website, or about the Christian faith in general, send us a note at questions at thechristianfaith.org. May this program and the ChristianFaith.org website be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and to all of God's children, for his sake and his glory. Amen. Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. Uh, And as I said, in this hour, we're going to bring a brother on, this segment rather, we're going to bring a brother on to talk with us about allegory. And uh, this is a brother, Mark, I've known for quite a long time. He's uh, from Goshen, Indiana, and happens to be with us uh, in Chicago today, visiting some family. So he came by. And Mark is a former English teacher. Uh, and so he spent a lot of time getting into this, uh, these matters of allegories and uh, considering what it means. What, what's the right way to come to an allegory? How can we learn from an allegory? And so, uh, Mike, Mark, <laughs> I'm turning on them. I, I, as I was turning on the mic, I was saying hello to Mark, and of course it came out Mike. So, <laughs> so uh, Mark, welcome to the program. Hi, Dave. Yeah, good, good to, to see you actually in the studio. It's the first time we've had a guest in, actually in studio. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, glad it worked out. Anyway, so, um, and Mark, I hope I had the uh, introduction okay. Yep. Uh, that uh, how how long how long did you teach? How many years? Thirty three wow. years in high school, public high school. Two years in Lithuania at a Christian oh, wow. university. Wow. Wow. And uh, what university was that, if I may ask? LCC International University. It's in Klaipeda, Lithuania. Wow. And it was founded right after the fall of communism. Wow. And it's a very interesting school. Well, that was a great two years. I did that yeah. post my high school teaching career. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, you can give them a shout out here. So maybe yeah. we can encourage them to listen to the podcast over in Lithuania. Yeah, sure. Yes. Why not? Uh, so um, we were talking, of course, uh, last week about the parable of the ten virgins, and which uh, uh, you know the Lord, of course, used a lot of parables, and 
of course, we were, and we were talking about this during the week, you had a lot of feeling about you know, how we need to understand how to come to the parables, mm-hmm. which are really kind of allegories. And uh, so if you could maybe share some of that thought and uh, maybe, maybe first of all, I, you know, we were talking a little bit before about the difference between parable and allegory. Now, the word allegory is only used once, I think, in the New Testament. That's in Galatians 4, where Paul's talking about Hagar and Sarah. He says these things are allegories. And I, I wasn't clear myself about the difference between a parable and an allegory. So maybe you can go ahead and start with that. Allegory is a broader term. And it's the big, broad term, actually. It covers parables. It covers hmm. really analogy, fables. Aesop's fables are all allegorical. And um, the definition usually given to a parable, it's just a simple story given allegorically to convey a spiritual truth. Can, can you say that again? A uh, simple story allegorically told given to convey a spiritual truth, a deep truth. Usually the word parable is associated with Jesus. They're his, his simple stories, and they are simple. They're short. And what's very interesting about them is gigantic, entire theological schools of thought can be distilled into a 10-verse parable. It, only, only Jesus could do that. His ability to, to tell a story, he was such a, such a storyteller. And in a way, apply it to somebody's life. It's, yeah, it's just amazing. Stories are, the human brain was built for stories. Hmm. And what stories do, what they allow you to do is they allow you to connect dots so you can't fill in all the data points. So a story gives you five data points, and you can, if you correctly fill them properly, you'll see a picture emerge. And that's, uh, uh, allegories are like this. Allegories, I, my metaphor for an allegory, and by the way, the word metaphor is really in the family of allegory. Yeah, sure. But my metaphor for what an allegory is, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And when Jesus told a parable, it's like a jigsaw puzzle where to some degree you don't see the picture on the box. So you say you've, your grandma, hmm. you inherited a bunch of old jigsaw puzzles from grandma, but the box covers were removed, the picture's not there. You just have all these pieces. So you start, you know, a lot of people start to sort them out into the edge pieces and the corner pieces, <laughs> and you can solve it. It helps immensely if you have the picture. Hmm. But the picture really is the spiritual truth. And but it's it's I feel that a lot of people who 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 um teach the Bible, who preach God's word and who love the Bible in its this sense sometimes get so excited about just the picture say that they fail to remember that one of the great joys of a jigsaw puzzle isn't the final picture. It's putting it together. It's when you get a piece of you have this one piece you're looking at and all of a sudden you see where it fits. Click yeah. that click. Oh, that's a satisfying. Moment. Yeah, that, that is. When, when you see a biblical truth like that, uh, that, that is a satisfying. So are, so are you saying the uh, overall biblical truth, that's like the picture of the jigsaw puzzle. And then the allegory would be the pieces that you're putting together. Well, the allegory is the whole process, but it's the pieces building into the picture. So really, in a sense, an allegory is uh, it's we're learning by comparing. Yeah. That's how we do a most a lot of our learning. Babies learn it. It's, it's mm. alle- in fact all of language in a way is an allegory because it's all symbolic. Every letter we speak, every sound we speak doesn't mean anything in and of itself. It's just if you don't believe it, go to another culture and try to listen to them talk. 
uh, they all have meanings that we all agree on, and, and then we put them together to form meaning. So what is the allegory itself? It's the complete thing. It's the picture on the box. It's the pieces in the puzzle. And I'm even going to argue right now that it's the process of putting it together. So hmm. I think the point I wanted to make a moment ago is that it's I taught I taught a song American Pie, which is a, uh, out of the Oliver Rock canon, is the my, my opinion the best allegory. Some people would have said uh, Hotel California. That's not even close. Hmm. American Pie is. <laughs> Right. Unbelievably well written and needs to be in every high school anthology. Yes, you're saying you taught this in in high school. And, yes. And let's give a shout out to your high school. That was Fairfield High School, Fairfield Goshen, high school. Indiana. Goshen, Indiana. Okay, great. Okay. So I taught it, and over the years we tried to solve it, and it's it's a hard one to solve. Sure. But I had the problem. I did a three day unit on it, and I it was I built it up over the years. I had the problem of where I would stand at the front and say, "Okay, this equals this, and that equals that." And the students, for, that song is so powerful, it, it kind of worked, but it left them out of this play. And every preacher and every teacher has this problem. If you just tell what this means, you may well destroy your the whole part of the whole joy of it, that, that clicking those pieces together. So you, you were talk, talking, telling a story about you were in listening to a teacher of teachers— and he had he had a point which is very striking to me. Which do you remember that it was? He said it was. Yeah, Don Moss. Um, he was saying that I, I spent a, in my graduate postgraduate actually, I just had a summer session once with a man named Don Moss from uh, University of California, San Luis Obispo. He'd say <laughs> I hadn't heard of that particular <laughs> campus, but anyway, he worked under the famous Madeline Hunter, uh, theorist in education. His his point was. Students need to be active participants for there to be learning to take really to take place. I think, well, I think what you said was if they're not participating, they're not learning. Yeah, they're not. And Very strong anyone, statement. I mean, if you just think of it this way, yeah. if you're a teacher and you look out and someone's sleeping, I guarantee you that sleeping person isn't learning. Right, right. So, and how do they participate? So, I remember we spent a week at Indiana University. He taught us a lot of techniques to get them to participate, and they were some were gimmicks. But gimmicks can be useful, and uh, some of them were whatever. But it helped my teaching a lot to go through that week of class with him. Hmm. And it really applies spiritually, too. So you have to, you know, get people to engage. So if you're speaking to a group, uh, one way they uh, – the nicest, most beautiful way to get them to uh, participate actively is to to look in their eyes and see that they're listening. And uh, – that's a, that's great, but often they aren't. So as a teacher, you'll adjust. You look at you're you're, make, you're gauging all the time, and you're deciding: is am I losing this person? Are they drifting off? So you may at that point tell a story. I had a, a supervising teacher when I was a student teacher who told me uh, one day in, in the middle of class I was observing him, and he had a kid get up and open a window after class. He told me the kid was falling asleep, so that woke him up. <laughs> so that was a way to at least to get him back awake. But I, I my point is with Jesus's parables. He had people around. We got to remember, these are a lot of them are simple people, and they have only observed the yeah. scripture orally. They haven't been read. They don't read. And he'd say, "Hey, you have heard it said." Oh, right, right. That's like in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that when he's talking to the Pharisees. He, he often, like we've said in this program, he says, "It is written." But in the Sermon on the Mount, because he's talking to the crowds, you have heard that it was said. Yeah, very different. Yeah, because he knew they weren't that that uh, familiar with the scriptures themselves, which is one of the big problems 
with one of the reasons why Israel drifted away from God, a big part of it. Yeah. yeah really so. And that's really why so. parables are so valuable because yeah. every one of those people listening can go home and kind of remember it. It's a st- little yeah. story. So they come home after that day of the ten virgins, and uh, John says to Levi, uh, what did he say? I forgot that part. Did he say they get drowsy and fall asleep? Or I can't remember how he said it. And then Levi says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what he said. They get drowsy and they fall asleep. And then and then they kind of piece it together. It's a group process. It's a be- That's a beautiful thing. Hmm. And they're starting to work with the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Hmm. So It's amazing how... The Lord could tell a parable, and it's so um, it's it, there's so much information there, and yet it's also uh, in so many different cultures, people are able to pick up what he's saying there. I mean, he, I, yeah, I think he a, he, there's a uniqueness. His his ability to speak to people in different cultures is just amazing. Well, I tried to write. I wrote some allegories over the years for my students. I really like allegory. And I taught others. I taught Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, a short story, which I'd encourage all of you to read. It's a, actually kind of a spiritual story. Mm. And I taught George Orwell's Animal Farm. Yeah, right. And I, would, I, I remember telling students, I think both of those are almost perfect allegories, mm. meaning every single detail contributed to that picture on the pu- box of the puzzle. Mm. And uh, when I was in Lithuania, I told my students, I'm going to teach you Animal Farm, a book that was banned in Lithuania when the, wow. when the communists took over. Yeah, I can see why. <laughs> yeah, it was a threat to them, a little, right, little right, so. animal story, a fable. And uh, I said, I'm going to be teaching Animal Farm in Animal Farm. That was how I kind of introduced it. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of gaped at me. But that was my view, and I was a little nervous saying it because it sounds a little, maybe a little offensive. <laughs> but that experience I had teaching uh, the book Animal Farm in Lithuania, which had been a former Soviet republic, was very revealing. It told me one thing. You never really totally solve an allegory because students would mm. come to me after class mm. and say, oh, yeah, when I read that part about old Major the Pig – and having when he had his dream, that was exactly like my grandma used to say. Hmm. Now remember this student's grandma. This was this would have been a student born around 1990, 1991, right around the time the com- the Soviet Union collapsed. And their grandma, she knew the Soviet Union story. Yeah. And another stu- and a student came to me once and said, you know that description of such hmm. and such character in the book, that's exactly how grandma used to describe Vladimir Lenin. Wow. What a strong chin he has. Wow. And and they would feed me information I could have never gotten just having stayed here in the U.S. Mm. Going over there to hear their storylines helped me to see more into that uh, parable. But I mention that now because if, if George Orwell could write what is almost a perfect par- parable or allegory, how about Jesus? He's mm. the son of God. And he's got 10 minutes with a crowd of people, like I said, who can't read. His parable, I'm, and plus, I want to say this, he didn't just speak it for the group standing around him. Yeah, that's the thing, right. It was, it was People all over the world get the benefit from these. How, how he could do that it was just incredible. And not just around the world, but how about this? The year 2022. In yeah. the, in the yeah, year yeah, 30 right. or whenever he was telling the ten virgins yeah. in God's mind, and Jesus is God, he's thinking of Chicago, Illinois, July, whatever today is. 
2022 that there will be uh, July 16th, yeah, right. July 16th, it'll resonate, and it does. Really so, yeah. So you know, in that simple little parable, two great schools of thought: Arminianism and Calvinism. One teaches you can lose your salvation; the other teaches that you can't. Is resolved to some degree in this little simple story of ten hmm. women, virgins, as it were, waiting for the bridegroom. Amen. Yeah. So anyway, I um, I think yeah. that's one of the absolute beauties yeah. of the parable is the simplicity of it. And yet with Jesus' tone, I tell you, it is perfect. So I have told Dave this in the past. You can't overanalyze a parable. Hmm. Now, you will have people tell you that. And you, if you're listening, <laughs> you must be or you wouldn't hear me say this. You may say that's you're over. Dave's overanalyzing that 10 virgins. People, as a teacher, I got that all the time. And my argument back is, no, you can't. You can't overanalyze it, but what you can do is you can poorly analyze it. Mm. So in interpreting parables, I think you should put out your theories and float them up like a hot air balloon and let everybody on the ground get their shotguns and see if they can shoot it down. And if your theory gets shot down, then you need to adjust. But I think over time, this has been uh, Christian history. This is how somehow we arrive at things. Some things are never going to be resolved. And Jesus didn't resolve everything. One time he interpreted a parable, and he did it point by point. He showed Mm. it's okay to analyze a parable. Right. The parable of the sower, right? In Matthew 13, right. Yeah, that's right. But but on others he didn't. So why not? Why not all the time? I think Dave pointed this out to me recently. He said he thinks Jesus pointed out the once to show us how to take a parable apart. But he didn't every time, or you lose the joy of clicking the jigsaw pieces of puzzle together. So he wants you to think about these parables, think about these stories, see how the pieces fit, pivot them a little bit, turn them a little bit, see if maybe you try to jam one together with a sledgehammer that maybe you should have not put there. Because I feel like that's what happens. A lot of Christian theology, you can just see pieces of puzzle hammered in a place that didn't belong. Yeah. Well, that's that's, – I heard someone – I'm trying to think where I read this. Uh, it might have been Pember. It may have been Panton. Uh, made a very good point that when, in the parables in the Bible, when there's a figure that's used, you can always see somewhere in the Bible there's an interpretation of that figure that helps us. Yeah. That's the, so that's that's how we interpret Scripture with Scripture, that it uh, uh, enables us to gives us the key to understanding these parables. So, yeah. Amen. So so maybe Mark, maybe uh, now we've got about. Ten minutes left. Maybe we should come back now to the uh, to that parable and just look at it. And uh, that I, I do of, want to say one thing first, yeah, and then ahead, we sure. can. So I once heard a, a pastor say this repeatedly in his sermon: "The Old Testament is Christ concealed; the New Testament is Christ revealed." And I really liked it. That is to take the Old Testament allegorically. Hmm. So back to the concept of allegory. It's a very touchy topic. And it's worthy of debate because a guy named Origen, born in 185, early church father, very influential, but later denounced by several popes. Um, Origen really allegorized the Bible. What it means is he took the words and said, well, I can't take them literally. I got to take them symbolically. I got to see the the pieces in themselves don't mean anything. I got to look at the big picture. And so he, I think he made some big mistakes. He erred. But he did help one thing that is really useful today. He helped the early church to accept the Old Testament. Hmm. Now, you got to think back in time. They were a lot of 
really flee. You know, that was a lot of them weren't Jews. I mean, as Paul took the gospel to yeah. other parts, they didn't have this background. It was very freeing and liberating. Hey, we don't have to believe in the Jewish God. But a lot of Jews were, this was a big problem for Paul. So he, the Old Testament was in somewhat danger by the early church of being dropped. It had no point. What's mm. the point? It's over. It's done. Even today, I know a lot of Christians, they don't like the Old Testament. Mm. You know, what's the point? I'll tell you, if you see it as Christ concealed, it's Amen. valuable. Yeah. And Amen. you know what? We have two verses in the Bible that tell us to do it. One of them, John 5.39, I think it is. Jesus said, you search the scriptures looking for eternal life, but you won't come to me. And then he adds the crucial line in whom or in which these scriptures testify. It is these who testify of me, right. Yeah. Amen. So there you have it. He's saying these scriptures, that's the Old Testament, Yeah. testify of me. Amen. So when you say the Old Testament is Christ concealed, that's right. Yeah. It is Christ concealed. So, you know, Paul and Peter, they both pointed things out. Amen. Paul called Christ the Passover. Hmm. So if you think yeah. of the Passover as this event, and it's Paul said, no, well, it is that event. True. It's literally true. But also... It's a picture, a portrait of Christ. That's an allegorical approach. You know, Luke, I was just looking at Luke uh, 24, 27. He's talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded in them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Yeah. That's the other one. Yeah, that's right. great. Yeah, and that's I Luke love 24, that. 27. Yeah. That's a great that's yeah. a great passage, right after he resurrected. Amen. So, okay. You well, I was, I, what you were just saying just reminded me of my own experience. Uh, it was it was life-changing when uh, I read Watchman Nee's book, the, uh, Changed into His Likeness, about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because I had never seen the Old Testament applied to our experience mm. in that way, about how he, he said these, these three figures in the Old Testament show us the three phases of the Christian life. Abraham's the life of faith. Isaac is the life of grace. Jacob is a life of transformation, and, and that really opened up my eyes to see how to come to the Scripture. Yeah. I highly recommend that book to anyone. Uh, it really shows you a very good way of treating the Scripture allegorically or as a parable, you know, using, well, drawing the lessons. Go well, ahead, Mark. Could I just add a point? I, it came to me. We'll, and, see, maybe, well, hopefully we can get to the in, parable. Go ahead. Go in ahead, recent yeah. years, yeah. John, he opens his gospel in the beginning, which is a direct yeah. almost attack on the Jewish they opened their Bible with the same three words. They even called the first book in the beginning. Hmm. But John's point was to show Christ was there. Amen. He said, you see it. You see God and you see the Spirit. Hmm. My brothers. He's talking to his brother Jews. But he said, what you don't see is the Christ. And he said he appeared there as the Word. So John starts out, in the beginning was the Word. And Amen. he's saying Christ was always there. That's an allegorical look. He looked at the old, in a sense... He looked at the Old Testament in a way to see Christ. Okay, Dave, 10 versions. We don't have much time. <laughs> yeah, so so we did want to, because last week what we did mainly was we just wanted to emphasize this is talking about the believers. And again, if you if uh, you want to see how we bore that out, you can uh, listen to the, to the podcast, uh, the Christian Faith Radio Hour on iTunes or Spotify. But in just a few minutes we have left, we want to look at some of the points in this parable. And, and see, okay, what is the Lord actually showing us? What is, what is he teaching us in this parable? So we can just go through it uh, verse by verse. Um, uh, and Matthew begins with Matthew 25, 1. Then the kingdom of the heavens shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And when I first, my, that always strikes me, that they went out to meet the bridegroom. What should our life be? Our life is a life of going out to meet the bridegroom. 
It's not a life of going out into the world to, to seek our fortune in the world. That's what the worldly people talk about. That's their portion. Our portion as Christians on the earth is to be virgins. Right. Going out to meet the bridegroom. Yeah. He is really precious. He likens them here to virgins. Our, we need to be uniquely for the Lord. My life is uniquely for the Lord, spiritually speaking. Not talking about, of course, in a physical sense. In a spiritual sense, right, we should all have that kind of purity. A virgin speaks of purity toward our bridegroom, right? And we're going forth to meet him. Yes, so. that's a great example. Yeah. And uh, just even the very first words, the kingdom of heaven is like yeah. at that time. I, I just noticed this past week, at that time, significant. Mm. It means it isn't kind of like that now. Mm. At that point in time, mm. whatever. And maybe you can define, maybe it is now, maybe everything from Christ going yeah. forward. Because these virgins are... Um, are are there who are they that's again when you're solving this jigsaw puzzle dave has used it he's assuming they're this is a big debate are they christians and non-christians is five christians five five believers and five non-believers or are they all 10 believers that's a big point and you need to look at the puzzle pieces yeah. and click them together dave thinks i agree the very fact they're called virgins means they're pure to some degree yeah. they're pure Amen. yeah so they're all part of the family of god yeah Amen. Well, in the next verse, the key point about that in the next verse is, is verse 2. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. So it's not that five of them were genuine and five of them right. were false. That's a key. It's talking about those who are wise and those who are That's right. the distinction here. That's the distinction. In fact, not, it doesn't say good and evil. Yeah, that's, that's right. very interesting. It says yeah. wise and foolish. Wise and fo because they have a proper view. And if we are wise towards the Lord, we're going to realize today I need to pay the price to follow the Lord. That's wisdom. That's wisdom, to pay the price to follow the Lord. If I'm foolish, I won't take the Lord's warning here. I'll just live my life as I see fit. And then if, that, if that's the case, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll suffer some loss. Mm -hmm. So, so what, how does it define wise and foolish? Okay, that's verse 3. Those who were foolish took uh, oil, took their lamps and took oil with them. But the wise, uh, uh, those, sorry, let me read that again. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Verse 4, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And here's where you really need to use the scripture to understand the figures the Lord is giving here. And again, almost always when we have a figure in, the, in a parable, the scripture gives us the key to understanding how it's using that uh, figure. Right. So you have one, yeah. one of the figures here is the oil. And, and for sure, we, we all know all throughout the Bible, oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. And so it's saying the, the wise had the oil in their vessel with their lamps, but the foolish didn't take oil with them. So uh, this is a little harder. The vessel, what does the vessel refer to? Well, that's us. That's uh, in uh, uh, Romans 9, uh, I think it's verse 21, verse 23. It says, we are vessels of mercy uh, unto God. So we are vessels. And so we are also, because it's a vessel, we are, uh, that's who we are. That's our soul. The soul is who we really are. So it's saying here, our soul is a vessel. And the point of the wise virgins is that they had the oil in their vessel. That means they had experienced something of the Lord's uh, transforming work, the Lord's life imparting work in their souls. Now, what's the lamp? Well, could right. I? Yeah, go ahead. Use an, I'll use a little allegory within the allegory. We used to heat during those 1970s, late 70s. I heated with wood and for a while, I had a kerosene uh, heater. Mm. Well, that has a reservoir. You fill it with kerosene, and that's how it heats. But you're foolish. If you're going to say heat for the weekend, you're going somewhere, and you take that with you, and you don't bring a 
five-gallon can of kerosene with you, that reservoir is going to go out. So there's a distinction. It's interesting. If you look at that parable, and again, I don't think you're – I'm overanalyzing it. The I and I think Dave's saying this. This vessel's the soul, and uh, the the lamp is the spirit. Because there is a Bible verse: the spirit, the lamp, the spirit of that's man. That's going to look. Yeah, Proverbs twenty twenty seven. That's the key to understand that verse. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. So, so there's an oil, there's a little reservoir there. Right. So all of them, at one point in time, had their lamps lit. Yeah. This is. True, because it said their lamps, they had to relight them, and they did relight the lamps. Right, and they trimmed them, showing that they, they had been lit before. Right. That means you had to trim the wick. But, but they it, needed more oil to because they still, even after the cry went out at, at midnight, by the way, you want to get into the allegory, at midnight's crucial. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. you need to ask right. yourself, why didn't why did the bridegroom wait till midnight? Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, that's about all. We're not going to Well, we're leaving some pieces of the puzzle for people to click together on their own. Yeah, to give an, give you an idea how to how to get into this. You use the scripture to interpret the scripture. So, but that's all we have time for today. Mark, so glad you could join us. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, praise the Lord. We hope the Lord will bless his time and uh, may the Lord bless you and lead you in his way and in his truth in this coming week. In Jesus name. Amen. You've been listening to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions, send us an email at questions at thechristianfaith.org. And to listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify. 